0: you would like to take your Bibles, let's turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, beginning at verse 18, Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father who is in heaven. For where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words. I thank you for the scripture. I thank you that these are not the only words that we find in the Gospel of Matthew, but that they have a context. They are familiar to many of us. We hear them in a variety of different ways, including some that are very inaccurate and sometimes even heretical. So help us this morning to understand them within the context of Scripture, that we would truly understand what our Lord intended by them, that we would be well-nourished and encouraged. We thank you for this in the name of Jesus, which is precious to us. Amen. So again, these are familiar words to us. We hear them. People talk about uh, a binding and and loosing. That's common language in certain circles. Uh, Prayer chains exist in part because of this idea that where two or three agree on anything, it will be done. Um, There are all kinds of, of issues that arise from that. Uh, the words that are here are not in question. Jesus said them. What's in question is how we understand them and how we interpret them. Uh, it's important that we understand them historically uh, according to the context in, in which they are, grammatically in terms of the language that Jesus actually used, and not anachronistically, anachronistic mean, meaning out of time. That is taking modern ideas, taking modern concepts or assumptions and reading them back into Jesus' meaning as though Jesus meant some modern assumption about this. We can only understand scripture by taking it as a whole in context. So let's, let's talk about the context just for a minute. Uh, much of Matthew 18 has to do with the restoration of stumbled believers Uh, Right before this, Jesus outlines a three-step process for correcting, for restoring a believer who stumbles into sin. It's clear as he lays that process out that we are to hope for their restoration, that that's our desire. There's always the possibility that they won't repent. And so he tells us what to do. He he doesn't give us the easy side, the good side of it, and then leave us to guess uh, what to do if things don't go as we would hope. He tells us what to do. Uh, Whether we pronounce someone forgiven and receive them back into fellowship or declare that they are unrepentant and remove them from fellowship are equally daunting tasks. They're equally fearsome. Our humanity would say it's the bad news we want to avoid. It's the removal of somebody from fellowship that's really the hard thing. If we were sensible, we would understand that pronouncing someone forgiven is just as daunting. You can say to yourself, as I would say to myself, who am I to say that someone has not repented and must be removed? That we should equally say, who am I to say that someone is forgiven? What if their repentance is a fake? What if their confession is a fake and they're lying to us and we pronounce them forgiven? Have have we just stepped into God's shoes? As Jesus brings this this idea of restoration kind of to a head here, he gives us assurance as we take the steps that he has given us to take. Uh, Who am I to remove someone from fellowship? I'm, I'm no one. I can only follow the instructions the Lord has given us. Who am I to declare that someone is forgiven and restored? I'm no one. I can only follow the instructions given to us by the Lord. So let's think about what we have here. I want to talk about the words binding and loosing. Uh, To bind something is to chain it. To loose something is to release it. Uh, the the phrase that I have in in the new in in the legacy standard version and some of you might have uh, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound or shall have been loosed that's kind of clumsy. Uh, some translations simply say whatever you bind on earth shall be bound, which leaves it more open. The grammar says the binding in heaven takes place first, the loosing in heaven takes place first, but shall be bound doesn't necessarily lead that way. So as as we even begin to think about that, we can be sure of this, that what happens on earth has been decreed in heaven. That if we, as we follow the Lord rather, we don't go ahead of him. We follow him. Whenever the Lord leads us, He's not behind us with a, with a whip or a stick, driving us. He is ahead of us so that wherever the Lord is taking you today, he's already there waiting for you to get there. You can't get ahead of him. And we see that in these words. And this is true, by the way, in every circumstance of our lives, not just the, the subject matter of restoring falling believers. We never precede Jesus. He's always there before we are. There's a practical sense in which binding and loosing come to play. As as odd as they sound, as odd as the language is, that they are eminently practical. You see, everyone is born in this life bound to sin and free from God. It is through the gospel of Jesus Christ that we are freed from sin. And bound to God. Romans chapter 6 verses 20 and 22 put it this way. For when you were slaves of sin, bound, that is, you were free or loosed in regard to righteousness. But now having been freed or loosed from sin and enslaved or bound to God, you have your benefit, leading to sanctification and the end eternal life. Now, Right before this, Paul explains in verse 19, I am speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. So he uses the idea of slavery and freedom in a, in a descriptive way. Not to say that we are literally chained to sin or that we are literally chained to God. But to describe how these relationships work and describe how they are exclusive. Someone who is bound is not free. Someone who is free is not bound. You can't be bound and free. You can't be free and bound. So we are born physically in this world, enslaved to sin and death, but free from the righteousness of God. Through the gospel, we are freed from sin and death and we are bound to Christ. Now, there's no third option. But Christians have been loosed from sin and bound to righteousness. But because we are both justified, declared righteous, and yet sinners, we stumble into sin. Much of that sin is very quickly resolved. We know it's happening as it happens, or shortly thereafter. The Spirit of God convicts us. We confess it. We repent of it. We move on. But there are times in the life of every Christian and any Christian and it can happen to any of us at any time that we stumble into a sin and it, it closes around our feet. It becomes the sin that easily entangles us. And we may long to be free of it and, and lack the ability and we may not know that we've stumbled into it. It may be apparent to someone else. Now, why does the Lord permit Christians to stumble into sin? I'll tell you, I don't know. It could be to teach us lessons of humility. We can be proud. There may be nobody as proud as a new Christian who has been freed from a sin, who thinks that they're free from that sin because of themselves. It could be that the Lord is teaching us deeper lessons about his grace and his mercy. It's common with new Christians and with immature Christians to think my relationship with Christ is governed by my behavior. The better I am, the more he likes me. That's not true. His love is absolute. Could be to break our pride and teach us humility. Humility. It could be to purify the church by teaching us holiness or by removing false converts. There are probably many other possible reasons. I don't know. I don't know why he does that. But I know that he permits us to stumble into situations at times. When somebody stumbles and becomes trapped, it's his will that those around them intervene for their good and for their restoration. That was that that process that Jesus laid out The three-step process of going alone, going with a a small group of others, and eventually going to the church and asking the church to appeal and and plead with this person to repent. In 2 Timothy 2, Paul lays out our side and God's side, our part and God's part. Here's our part. The Lord's slave, that's you if, if you're the one approaching somebody else. The Lord's slave must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all. Able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition. That's our part. That's our part. Now, I've known people who would agree with most of that. They would agree that the servant of God should not be quarrelsome, but be kind, able to teach, patient, and gentle. But then they'll say, if you correct somebody, you're not being gentle. If you correct someone, you're not being kind. That's not true. That's not true. It's like the idea in Ephesians chapter 4 of speaking the truth in love. I've known people whose assumption was, if they didn't say the words, that if you speak the truth in love, what that really means is you don't speak the truth. Because speaking the truth would not be loving if it hurts somebody else. Speaking the truth is loving. There's no better way to be loving than to speak the truth. With gentleness, not quarrelsome, able to teach, patient when wrong, with kindness. With the fruit of the Spirit, that's the sense here. That's our part. What's God's part? If perhaps God may give them repentance, leading to a full knowledge of the truth. And that they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil, having been held captive by him to do his will. Our part is to not be quarrelsome, but kind, with teaching, patient, and gentleness, correcting those who are in opposition, in the hope that God will give them repentance. And repentance then opens the door to the rest. Repentance opens the door to the full knowledge of the truth. Repentance opens the door to them coming to their senses. And escaping the snare of the devil. Because the devil has taken them captive, bound them to do his will. So bringing it back to Matthew then, what are we seeing when Jesus says, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. If someone repents on earth, it is because God in heaven has already granted them repentance. And then we pronounce them loosed from their guilt. Who am I to loose someone from their guilt? Nobody. That's not what we're doing. We're not loosing them, we're declaring what God has already done. How do we know what God has done? They've repented. How do we know their repentance is real? We don't. We can only take it for what it is. If you engage in this with people, at some point you'll be lied to. There will be people who think that they've repented and they don't really know what's happening and the Lord is still training them and teaching them and there will be people who just look in your eyes and lie to you. It's not your job to try and guess which. If they repent, you can say to them, based on that repentance, I can say to you, with fullness of faith and heart, that you've been forgiven for your sins and you've been freed and you've been restored. If their repentance is a lie, then your restoration is a non-issue. They still bear that before the Lord and you're not responsible for not seeing through their sin. As Jesus puts it, whatever we loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So when that person repents, you know that God has been at work. On the other hand, if if they refuse to repent, then eventually, and, and Jesus gives us those steps, but eventually we have to pronounce them bound. We have to bind them to their sin. Not that we have the power to bind them spiritually, but rather we are recognizing that God in heaven has not given them repentance, that he has bound them to their sin. He has given them over to it. It may be for an hour. It may be for a week. It may be for the rest of their existence. We don't know. We we really don't know. Whatever we bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. We're simply recognizing and stating what God has done or not done as a witness to what he has done or not done. It's hard to think of anything that would be more serious or life-changing than pronouncing that someone is bound to their sin and then removing them from the fellowship. It is a life-changing, serious act. And we're right to say to ourselves, who am I to do that? This is a fearsome thing. We don't take it lightly. We wouldn't do it hastily. But again, if we have any sense, we will also think of loosing someone from their sins and pronouncing them forgiven and receiving them back into full fellowship is equally fearsome and life-changing. What if they're being deceptive about their repentance? We're pronouncing them forgiven when they're not. We're pronouncing them restored to the fellowship when they have not been restored to the Lord. But eventually that's going to come out. And again, who are we to do such a thing? What makes it even more harrowing is that there's no, anim- no anonymity with this. This isn't done by a secret ballot. There's a face and a name behind this. I-, I saw a documentary on the death penalty. The warden was explaining the process. He stands in the chamber with the, the, uh, the condemned He nods to the assistant warden. The assistant warden flips a switch on a wall. There's a room that's windowless, and there are three men in the room. Each has a button in front of them, and there's a red light in there. And when the assistant warden flips the switch on the wall, the red light goes on in that little windowless room, and each of these men push their button, and the execution takes place. So what they've done is they've disconnected the people involved from the act of killing this man. So none of them has to say, I pushed a button and I watched a man die. Each one gets anonymity. There's no anonymity in the church. If it's necessary to confront somebody over their sin, you cannot do it anonymously. If it's necessary to pronounce someone forgiven... And restored, you can't do it anonymously. We should not do it anonymously. If it's necessary to remove somebody from fellowship, it can't be anonymous. And it's an intimidating thing as a pastor and elder to think about standing in front of a group of people and making this decision. And we need assurance. We need some assurances from the Lord. And he gives us two assurances here that we are not alone. Verse 19 and 20. Again, I say to you, Jesus says that if two of you agree on earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my father who is in heaven for where two or three have gathered together in my name, I am there in their midst. So Jesus has not left us to our own devices. We're not floating rudderless in the sea at the mercy of wind and waves and circumstance and fortune. He's with us. He is guiding us. We have a leader. We have a Lord who remains with his people. Even while he is physically absent from us, he is spiritually present with us. And he's not spiritually present in the way that we say, well, I'll be with you in spirit. No, he is actually spiritually with us. And so we don't lead alone. We don't make these decisions alone. And by the way, even though the majority of the people in the body of Christ never serve in a a, pastoring in an elder role we're friends and many of us are parents and grandparents and we have to make some decisions about whether there's consequences or not so in a small way everybody deals with this many people who've never had kids are still in people positions of leadership and they have to rebuke sometimes and they have to correct sometimes and it's always an intimidating process I would imagine that the majority of times you've heard Matthew 18, 19, and 20, it's been within the context of prayer. But prayer is not Jesus' primary topic. His primary topic is that we are not alone when we trust him and obey him. He does talk about prayer. I'll talk about that a little bit at the end of the message. But the, the point of Matthew 18:19 is not that answered prayer requires agreement. Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on, on Earth about anything that they may ask, it shall be done for them by my Father, who is in heaven. Anything? No. Well, he says anything, but he doesn't mean anything. Well, he says anything, okay? We could pick two people at random. We'll let you come up and pray that Adam and Eve never sinned. And then we'll see if God completely rewrites salvation history. Well, he said anything. I imagine if you said that to some people who really count on this, they would say, oh, well, that's in the past. Why should time be a barrier for God? The reason God doesn't change the past is not because he can't. It's because the past is what he willed. He doesn't change his will. Whether it was good or bad, uncomfortable or pleasant for us, the past is his will. So the point Jesus is making is not that answered prayer requires all kinds of agreement. James 5.16 says the effective prayer of a righteous man by himself can accomplish Much And he's speaking about Elijah who prayed and stopped the rain for three and a half years. One man. Nobody agreed with him. The point of Matthew 18.20 is not that Jesus is uniquely present when we're with at least one other person. Jesus is present with us when we're by ourselves. Paul writes at the end of his life to Timothy... At my first defense, this is before Nero, no one supported me, but all deserted me. May it not be counted against them, but the Lord stood with me and strengthened me. So that through me, the preaching might be fulfilled and that all the Gentiles, all the way up to the emperor might hear. And I was rescued out of the lion's mouth. So Jesus was powerfully present, wonderfully present with Paul, even though Paul was by himself. So Jesus' point is not that in order to get an answer to prayer, you need at least one other person agreeing. Or that if there's at least two people, Jesus is uniquely and wonderfully present. His point is that he doesn't require a minimum number. I have no problem with prayer chains. Prayer chains are fine. But increasing the number of people praying does not increase the possibility of an answer. We've all seen those fundraisers that use a thermometer. As they raise money, they fill in the thermometer. And when the thermometer is full, the project's funded and it can go forward. God doesn't do that. You praying by yourself... Following the principles of prayer that are laid out for us in scripture. We'll talk about that in a moment. Receive an answer. I've heard some people point out recently that the number of people who come to hear the current president of the United States speak is dwarfed by the number size of the audiences who come to hear the previous president of the United States speak. And that's probably true, but God doesn't count heads He doesn't take attendance. That's his point. As you face restoring someone who has sinned and has now repented and pronounce them forgiven and welcome them back into the fellowship, or as you pronounce someone who refuses to repent, still bound in their sins and remove them from the fellowship, you don't need the agreement of thousands of people. The Lord is with you. When the hard work of restoration takes place, we are not alone. As we face the world that we face, we are not alone. As we deal with the crises that that enter into our lives, we are not alone. When when the, the terrible diagnosis comes, we are not alone. It comforts us to have other human beings with us. It does. It might might make us feel a little bit more inspired. It might encourage us to stand more firmly in the Lord. We're supposed to serve one another in that way. But they're not necessary for him to answer. I think I can safely say that there's not been a single time in your life in the Lord Jesus, where you prayed and God the Father in heaven said, even though you didn't hear it, but you don't have somebody else agreeing, I can't do anything. Or when you ask for the Lord to be with you in the midst of some pain or some crisis, and he said, there's not enough there. Uh I got saved in 1978. It was kind of the height of the Christian, contemporary Christian music scene. There were people who at the time were well-established in Christian music, Barry McGuire, um, um, the second chapter of Acts, uh, Keith Green, um, Randy Stonehill, who is one of our favorites. And uh, there was a point where a bunch of those, these old dinosaurs got together and did a video and they just talked about music. They played their songs and then they just talked about what happened. And I'm, I'm pretty sure that it was Barry McGuire talked about being asked to go do a concert at a church. And when he showed up, no one was there, but the pastor, nobody came, nobody came. And so they said, what did you do? And he said, I sat, stood on the stage and I sang to this man for two hours. Uh, Linda and I, when when we lived in Central California, the California Mid-State Fair was a a huge fair. And they had a Christian music night on a free stage. We were there one night. Randy Stonehill was there. And so we took the kids and uh, we sat there in the stands, Randy and his acoustic guitar. And he sang and he's funny and just, you know, really great seeing him live. And we'd seen him live before. The next band came up, and they started doing their sound check, and, man, it was a young person band. It was a full thing. It was thunderously loud, and the kids are freaking out. So we left. We came back about an hour, hour and a half later. Randy was still down at the front of the stage over on the side praying with people and talking with people. They're surrounding him. The band on stage had just finished. Their handlers are handing pieces of paper back and forth for autographs but they won't come down and talk to you. And that that was the big difference with those early people. Their attitude was it's it's me and you and that's all that's necessary. I'll talk to you all night. It doesn't require a certain number to go to a concert. I don't have to have protection. I'm here to serve. How can I serve? That's the sense that we that we see this. We are not alone. As we follow the Lord, as we carry out these hard things, these unimaginable things, we are not alone. Even if there's only a couple of us praying about it, that's sufficient. Even if there's only a couple of us gathered, that's sufficient. That's Jesus' primary point here is to encourage his men as they face these unimaginably difficult times. You're not alone, and we're not alone. Now, Jesus does speak about prayer here. And so I, I, I just want to address some principles of prayer. I certainly cannot begin to give you all of them. Uh, one is given to us in verse 19, wherever two agree on earth about anything, it shall be done for them. But really, again, there's limits to that. It's got to be based on the other principles that are there. So let me give you just, I think, four here. John fourteen fourteen, Jesus says, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Asking in Jesus' name means asking for his purposes and his glory. Uh, We've had a person doing a little bit of work on our house, and uh, to make it easier for them to get materials, I went to Menards and and got uh, gift cards. But I could have gone to Menards and simply set up an account in my name and given him permission to go purchase in my name. He would have had permission to get whatever he needed for the projects that he was doing at the house in my name. Now, obviously, he was not, would not have been permitted to get something for his own stuff. Menards wouldn't know that. There's obviously holes in the issue. Well, when we go to the Lord, when we go to the Father, and we ask in the name of Jesus, and we're saying, you've called me to do this work. You've called me to this ministry. I need this to do this ministry. If we do, he'll provide it. We don't even have to worry about that. He wants us to follow him. If we don't need it, sometimes we need things we don't. We think we need things and we don't. He knows. Uh, another one, John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. So we have to be rightly related to Jesus. We have to be abiding in him. And his words have to be abiding in us. As, as, as far as I understand, that would mean that we're living in humble obedience and submission to his word. And he'll answer that prayer. That's where it kind of falls apart for some people. They'll say, well, I ask in Jesus' name, but in Jesus' name doesn't mean tacking in Jesus' name to the end of the prayer. But they'll say, I ask in Jesus' name, are you living for him? Are you abiding in him? Are you immersed in him on a daily basis? Are you concerned with his word and following it and trusting it and obeying it? He says you need to be. James writes, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach. Let me just stop and say, I really like that. I really like that if we need something from God, he gives it generously, but he gives it without reproach. That means he doesn't blame us for needing it. If we go to the Lord and say, I need wisdom, he doesn't say, okay, I'll give you all the wisdom that you need, but I don't know why you should need this. What's wrong with you? He doesn't give it by spanking it, or spanking us our need, need for it. He just says, yeah, I know you need wisdom. I know, I know. I've been withholding it so that you would come to me. Here, you can have all you need. He gives generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him, but he must ask in faith, doubting nothing the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea driven and tossed by the wind now the way that this is twisted by some is to say if you need a new car you ask for a new car and you never doubt the new car but that's not what James says James says you ask for what you need and you don't doubt God's generosity and his good character that's the no doubting I have no doubt as we prayed for the things that were, that were brought up, I have no doubt that God can do every single one of those things we prayed for. Exactly as we think of him doing them. He has the power to do anything that he wants. Will he? I don't know. I don't know. But I don't doubt him. I don't always know his will, but I don't doubt him. And then John writes, this is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. I want you to notice that John does not say, if we ask anything and it is his will, he'll do it. He says, if we ask anything according to his will. So we have a responsibility to know his will. We don't always know his will. Is it his will to heal somebody miraculously from cancer? I don't know. Does he have the power? Absolutely, unquestionably. Is it his will? I don't know. We can't show from scripture that it is. But I know this, for every one of you who are in Christ, I know that his will is your sanctification. So I can pray for your sanctification without wondering if he'll answer that. He will answer that. I know he'll answer it because the scripture says, this is his will for you, your sanctification. So it's our responsibility to educate ourselves. And there's this joy in the Christian life of learning to know Jesus through his word. And I've found, and and maybe others find this too, I I find the longer that I'm in the Lord, the more prayers I see answered. It's not that he's rewarding me for years of faithfulness. It's that as I know him better, I'm praying more in line with who he is and with his character and with his purposes and with his will. I want you to be careful about books that claim to give you the secret to answered prayer. There's no shortage. There is no secret. There is no secret. They're just principles. And those principles are all found in one place, You have to study it. You have to seek them out. But they're not hidden. They're not codes. They're not kept from you. They're not concealed. You just have to understand them. Um, I think that one barrier to answered prayer, ironically, is thinking that all we need for answered prayer is to tick off the requirements. If I can just figure out all the principles of prayer and I can tick them off, God will give me what I want. He's not a machine. And if we treat him like a machine, that's probably the quickest way to have him shut off the supply. This is why he answers prayer in spite of our ignorance. He answers prayer all the time. We don't understand what it is we're praying for. We don't understand the principles that we're putting into place. And sometimes by his mercy, he answers. Because God can do anything that he pleases. In other words, you can pray in Jesus' name without ever saying those words. As we bring this home, there are times when the Lord leads us into uncomfortable places. Church discipline is one of those places. Hospital rooms are hard. People have hard questions about life in Christ, the suffering and death of loved ones. This list just can go on. We could start naming off items and go till, till sundown. The promise that we have from the word is, is that we never need to worry, first of all, that we're ahead of him if we're following him by definition, if we're following him, he's ahead of us. We're not going to find ourselves in a place where he's absent. And we can trust that as we follow him on earth, he is leading us from heaven, that wherever we arrive, he's waiting for us. And second, even if only one or two are praying with us, that's sufficient. He hears us. He's not saying, but you're not getting enough voices. You're not getting enough people. You're not getting that thermometer filled up high enough for me to care. He cares. And then finally, even if only two or three are gathered together, Jesus is with us. He's not counting heads to make sure it's worth his time. (laughs) Father, I thank you for your love for us and your kindness to us. Uh, We have all doubted your goodness. We've all questioned it. probably far more times than we would ever know ourselves or be willing to admit. But as, as much as you are holy and righteous, you are good and loving. Those traits are not in conflict within you. You are completely holy all the time. You are completely loving all the time. as we face the, the, the hard things, I ask that your Spirit remind us that we're not alone, that you are with us, that you see and that you hear. And we thank you for this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen.